Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. Hello, this is Diane Estabrook, staff writer for McKnight's Home Care Daily. The COVID-19 pandemic has increased depression, anxiety, and has led to an overall deterioration in behavioral health. The problem is especially acute in older adults who are often isolated at home with chronic health conditions. I recently spoke with Catherine Vanderhorst, a psychiatric nurse and president of CNV Senior Care Specialists. Her company provides behavioral health support services to home health agencies and other providers. As we started our conversation, Vanderhorst told me what she has been seeing over the past three years among older adults. Most people have been isolated in their homes or isolated in a facility. I have people that I consult with who haven't seen their family, didn't see their family for six to nine months. And so the level, if you look at statistics in the U.S. about mental health in adults, it was about one out of every five adults. Now it's closer to one out of every three have some level of anxiety or depression And what I've seen in our elderly population, whether they're at home or whether they're in facilities, that this is definitely the case where it is closer to one out of every three. And I've also seen that those people who have a cognitive disorder, meaning they have some type of dementia, also will suffer from anxiety and depression. And the overlap of the depression and anxiety and coupled with their level of isolation has caused them to almost de you know it's caused their decline in dementia almost by an entire stage where they have declined cognitively and because of the overlap in that of having the mental illness on top of the cognitive disorder it's interesting you say that it's increased um because i would think that as we've kind of emerged from covid and the restrictions have been lifted so much that you would see you would have seen a decline because people could have you know gotten out a little bit more and they could have seen their family members but it's in fact increased why why do you think that is well i think part of it's increased because people there's a lack there's an enormous lack of services of mental health practitioners to service our elderly and i'll give you an example um I work with a client privately who's in her late 70s, and to get her into a psychiatrist on average is going to take six to eight months. Uh, To get her into a psych NP, almost that same amount of time. And if they're homebound, there's not a lot of services that come to the home. And, you know, there's a lot of great behavioral health telehealth programs now But a lot of our elderly don't have the access to get on those programs. They don't have computers or they don't know how to use them. So that's a really big issue. The other thing is I think COVID created a lot of, to ask why there's still a lot of issues, I think it created a lot of fear in people. You know, people are afraid now of going out and getting sick. I mean, I saw in the news this morning, they're calling it, you know, COVID and RSV and flu, the triple threat. And so now people have that increased fear again about, you know, going out, being social, getting together with families. And you do hear, especially at the holiday time after Thanksgiving, there was quite a peak in COVID hospitalizations again in several states in the U.S. So, you know, people, it's always lingering in the back of their mind that, you know, COVID or another illness is present and it makes them feel, 
you know, anxious because they're unsure of what they can do. It makes them feel depressed about whether or not, you know, life is going to go back to normal. So I think, you know, people still live with this. What I see and I observe when I'm working with people is that there's still that fear about what's out there. And then there's a real lack of services for, for our elderly today to be able to access. And you mentioned, I thought it was interesting, you mentioned that telehealth, they have difficulty accessing that. And we've heard a lot about telehealth services, especially in behavioral health, increasing over the last couple of years. But it sounds like it might be out there, but they have difficulty getting to it. Is there anything that can be done to help them access those services? And and would that come from a provider, like a home care company uh, or a home care um, assistant? or perhaps their family members. Right. Well, I really think that if it comes to, if it's something where they have to get on a computer platform, somebody usually has to be there to walk them through it. How do you get on? Um, how do you, you know, get into your file, you follow your link. Um, and I think family, I think a home care provider could. Many of our Medicare certified agencies in the U.S. provide behavioral health nursing. And so a lot of people don't know that. They don't access that. Physicians don't refer to it because they don't realize it's a covered service under Medicare. So there are some services people can link to. It's whether or not everybody understands how to access them. But one of the things, another issue, Diane, with telehealth is that if somebody has a cognitive impairment, say they have Alzheimer's and it's in the early stages, are they going to be able to get on a computer, remember how to get on? And, you know, several of the telehealth programs do not necessarily uh, address people with cognitive issues. You know, they'll address people with depression and anxiety, but not necessarily with the cognitive issues. So I think really in order for people to use platforms like telehealth, and I know even in in clients, again, that I service, if they're using telehealth, there has to be somebody, a caregiver, a family member that actually helps gets them on that platform and can be available to that. Because many of them either may not, you know, they may lack a computer or they may lack the knowledge of how to get on the computer and get on to a platform to be able to talk one-on-one with, a say, a therapist. How do behavioral health problems in seniors affect other con- medical conditions they might have and vice versa? Okay, so that's a great, great question. What, because, and this is kind of one of the things that I always like to emphasize to anybody that we consult and train with, is that you know when you have a, a client and let's say they have congestive heart failure, and they have depression, if you don't treat that depression, the person's probably not going to adequately manage. If they're so depressed they can't get out of bed and barely can get dressed, they're not gonna be monitoring their sodium intake. They're probably not getting on a scale religiously. Um, They might not even be taking their medications. So I always say it's like peeling back the onion. We really have to manage the depression is really say somebody is depressed and has CHF, you have to manage that depression to get a positive physical. The other thing is that the leading diagnoses that we see, congestive heart failure, chronic, you know, obstructive pulmonary disease, diabetes, wounds in the elderly, 
all of these illnesses have an enormous overlap with mental health diagnoses. Actually, I was just preparing a, a presentation on that the other day. And it's almost like the chicken and the egg, which came first. But one of the things I always say to people is if you go to a doctor, the doctor should be treating the entire, all your diagnoses. And, you know, it's the same when a home health care provider comes in your home, they should be addressing all the diagnoses. So there's a real inner relationship. I always say to people, think about a client who has emphysema. If you can't breathe, you're going to be anxious because you can't breathe. And it becomes this vicious cycle of, I can't breathe, I get anxious, I get anxious, I can't breathe. So in order for us to have outcomes, and especially under today under value-based purchasing, which is you know going to be so big in 2023, um, it's very important that we address all the underlying diagnoses the patient has because they're all interrelated. And it's going to be you, in order to keep people out of hospitalizations or emergency rooms, we need to address the behavioral health diagnoses. So for example, most people don't realize that the leading diagnosis that somebody may have that's underlying that will lead them to an emergency room is an anxiety disorder. But in the elderly, they might go to the, to the emergency room and complain of back pain and stomach pain or muscle stiffness or tension headaches. And Oftentimes, they aren't assessed for anxiety, which is really the underlying cause of what's bringing them there that day. So on top of this, on top of their overlap of these diagnoses, we have to get better at having the clinicians assess people for anxiety and depression and cognitive changes. You know, I've had, I had a doctor say to me the other day, you know, I don't understand why my client isn't taking her medication. And this woman happened to be in her early 80s. Well, if, the, if this woman hadn't been accessed for her cognitive function, so she had a very poor score on the, say, the brief interview of mental status, if she can't remember three words, how is she going to be able to remember to take 11 medications? And so we really need to, as clinicians, in order to address this, we need to make sure that we, all the clinicians, nurses, NPs, doctors, assess people for their cognitive changes, you know, anxiety and depression at a regular visit. Because if somebody's very depressed, they aren't going to manage the medical diagnosis. If they have a cognitive issue, they're not going to remember to. You know, I always say to someone, when you teach someone to manage diabetes, you know, you're teaching them about diet and how to drop their insulin and use their glucometer. There's a lot of factors that go into it. If somebody doesn't really even remember what day it is, it's going to be hard to get them to follow through with that. So we need to adequately, I think, in order to address these issues that co-mingle with themselves, we need to address the fact that we need to better assess people and treat all the diagnoses. And to answer your question, people with chronic comorbidities, on average, at least people, the more comorbidities they have, Diane, the greater the likelihood is that they will have a mental health diagnosis. So, you know, somebody with one chronic diagnosis, like say they have COPD, you know, maybe has a 50, 60% chance of having a mental health diagnosis. But say they've got COPD and CHF, you're talking it's closer to 60 to 70%. So we have to really make sure that as we're treating individuals 
with chronic conditions for medical conditions, we need to assess them for all of their mental health conditions that might coexist so we can address them hand in hand. How should behavioral health fit into a home health or a home care plan? If I'm running an agency, how should I be addressing this? Right. Well, actually, it's a great question. So starting in 2023, January 1st, 2023, Medicare under the what's called the Impact Act, which was um, created prior to COVID and was supposed to go into place. Now, all post-acute care providers, home health agencies, rehabs, will all have to do the same type of behavioral and cognitive assessments across the board. And they assess for depression, for cognitive changes, for delirium. And so there's all these evidence-based tests that agencies will be mandated to use starting January 2023 if they're billing Medicare or managed Medicare. And so I think that's a great thing. I mean, it does create a little more work for the providers. But, you know, if we, to be honest with you, if a clinician's walking in a home and say a client came out of a hospital for a cardiac condition and they're going home, we should assess for cognitive changes because say the person can't remember things or doesn't know, you know, how to uh, access their physician or can't remember how to make a phone call, we have to put other resources in place. Maybe we need to put some aids in the home to help them. Maybe we need to get the family to be aware that they're going to have to be more involved in the care plan around, you know, medication reminders and, and any of the treatments that they need. So, Home care agencies today, as of January 1st, will be home health, will be mandated to do this, as will all post-acute care providers. So I think it's a positive thing that starting, you know, in a new year, we will all be assessing the same assessments on our clients in that post-acute care space. Now, the only people that that doesn't count for, Diane, is what is called home care agencies, the ones that may be private duty or Medicaid reimbursed they do not fall under that mandate um, that a home health agency that's billing Medicare would. And I do think that everybody going forward, any of the any licensed agencies should be required to assess for mental health and cognitive changes because it really does affect how we approach that client. And I view that all of us that work in the post-acute care space have a huge role and helping keep our clients out of the hospital and at the what I call the least restrictive level of care. And the only way we can do that is to do a thorough assessment of our clients' you know, behavioral and mental health needs. Let's talk about that a little bit because you did bring up a good point. A lot of our audience is people who run um, private duty um, or their Medicaid um, reimbursed um, programs. And so they're not clinicians that are going into the home. So those folks that are going in to do, to take care of activities of daily living, bathing, toileting, that sort of thing, what, what should they be looking for and what can they do? And should they be constantly looking for these problems potentially in their clients and then reporting back to their agencies? Right. Really, in most home care agencies in the U.S., depending on state licensure, somebody has to go in initially, a nurse or care manager, and do an assessment. So, you know, I think that's vital. But, I, you know, I teach courses all over the U.S. to, to the, you know, the paraprofessional caregiver level. 
and I teach them about what are all the signs of depression and anxiety. I also teach them a lot about the fact that our elderly often will exhibit different signs with a lot of mental health diagnoses than, say, a 25-year-old will. They'll talk about things in a physical term, like, oh, my stomach was upset all weekend, or I have all this muscle tension. So they'll talk a lot about depression symptoms in more physical terms, not sleeping, not eating. Um, Many times they will also, I always, one of the things I, I talk to clinicians about all the time is to normalize. When we talk to our elderly population, many of them, there's still such a stigma attached to mental illness. So if you can have the same client, and I'll give you an example. Years ago, I was in New York City in a, in a housing um, project with a nurse, and she was opening a case for a client. And she was doing her Medicare assessment, and she asked the woman, was she depressed? Now, if you looked at this woman, she was visibly depressed. She hadn't been out of her apartment in six weeks. She had all the, the um, shades drawn. She said she didn't really care about managing any of her cardiac disease or kidney disease. So when the nurse asked her, are you depressed? She said, no. Later on in the interview, I said to her, you know, with everything that you're dealing with, I wouldn't be surprised if you weren't a little feeling a little down or overwhelmed. Is that correct? And she said, oh, yes. So we have to normalize. And so we have to have our caregivers know how to talk to people about, like somebody who's very anxious I had a woman say to me once, I'm not anxious, I'm just a chronic worry wart. Well, she was anxious, but that was the way she talked about it. So we have to have our clinicians understand at all levels, you know, especially those hands-on caregiver, what are signs of anxiety? What are signs of depression? And I'll give you an example. Lots of times in our elderly population, a woman who's depressed in her, let's say she's in her 80s, is going to look totally different than a man who's depressed in their 80s. And what's the difference? Well, women will often explain that, talk about feeling down. They'll talk about feeling hopeless. They may cry. They may, you know, convey a lot of guilt. Men will often come across as being very irritable. They might come across as being negative. They might use alternative means to cope, like substances or gambling or a lot of television. um, And they won't, me less likely to talk about what's going on. So we have to teach the clinicians how to observe the signs. And then, like you said, Diane, they need to report those signs right away back to their, you know, the care managers on the case or their supervisor on the case. You know, if a client's refusing to get up and get dressed and bathe and they just want to lay in bed all day and they don't want to eat, well, that's a huge red flag. We need to communicate that. Or if they're refusing to take their medication Because they say, oh, what's the point? I don't need that. We need to communicate that right away to their supervisor. So all the, what I call the red flags are things that caregivers need to be educated to. And then they need to communicate that to their office so that the supervisors or case managers can communicate with their physicians. And there is a lot of research that shows home care providers, and I'm a big fan of them, have a real role in helping to keep our clients, our elderly clients out of the hospital if they know what to communicate to their supervisory level staff. And that staff communicates with the physician and they decide some kind of assessment or action will take place. And, you know, 
so many people today, as you can imagine, since COVID, they want to stay in their home. They're very nervous about, you know, maybe accessing care at other levels. And so our care providers need to be really trained on what are the behavioral health diagnoses that are most common in the elderly? How are they exhibited? How to report those signs to the office? And then the other thing that I think is really important is that our caregivers need to know how to how to get people to do things. Like if somebody is depressed, you know, you don't want to argue with them. You don't want to say, oh, tomorrow you'll feel better. Say, you know what? I can see you're feeling down today. Let me let me see what I can do to help you. How can I help you? Um, and And offer that person, explain that they're there to help. And do things slowly. When people are say they're very depressed, they're often moving at a different speed. And so kind of encouraging them, coaching them, and doing things in very short and small steps and creating what I call small goals. You know, today when I'm here with you today, let's just see if I can help get you washed up and dressed. And then we can go to the kitchen and have, you know, some coffee and breakfast and trying to not make it so overwhelming for them about all the things you're there to accomplish, but break everything into short steps. And then when the person does do things, you want to be very encouraging to them. Oh my gosh, Mrs. Jones, look at what you accomplished today. When I come back tomorrow, I look forward to being able to help you do these things. So communication, what I call therapeutic communication, is vital for our staff to understand how to do that and communicate that so that we can kind of be a coach, that we can be, you know, somebody there to help that individual as they're struggling, but get them to do things at the same time. So, you know, not only is the assessment and the reporting, but communication, you know, if somebody isn't eating or drinking, we need to communicate that right away. That's a real sign that someone is often depressed. It can be a sign that they have cognitive issues so that we we address that. And clinicians should be responsible to report those things after every shift or during a shift if it's critical. All really wonderful points, especially with the upcoming holidays. We're in the middle of the holiday season, which does bring on a lot of depression, um, even when there's not a, a COVID-19 pandemic. Catherine Vanderhorst, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. And thank you, Diane. Happy holidays. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com.